as Anishinaabeg, we are emotionally distraught, burned out. You know, it's it's been a really, really hard nine months. Like you said, that cultural notion of what wolves are and the misinformation myth around them is that's at the heart of all of it, I think. I guess the problem is that for every human, there's a human that's going to object to something, right? You got to just believe that when people tell you over and over again that they have a hatred, that they probably have a hatred. Yeah, I mean, I initially felt alarm and disappointment. Really, the this decision was purely political, and uh, you can see that from the proponents of the delist. And so, it was primarily special interest groups and in, in the livestock industry. And this is a, this is a highly politically charged topic. And I don't care if you're native or you're non-native. You know, like being everyone, everyone has a right to a connection to the natural world. Welcome to Animalia, where we cover all things conservation, climate justice, and sustainability. Welcome back to the American War on Wolves, a four-part podcast series here on Animalia. As a recap, in case you didn't get to listen to the first three episodes, in episode one, we explored a few key aspects of gray wolf biology, sociology, and day-to-day life to establish a foundation for understanding this incredible species. In episode two, we chronicled the disturbing historical efforts to exterminate them here in the United States, dating back to the mid-1900s through the end of the 20th century, shaping the culture of wolf hatred that still powers most of wolf opposition today. In episode three, we talked about recovery and reintroduction, dissecting the successful recovery program in Yellowstone and the unsuccessful attempts in the Southwest U.S. for the Mexican gray wolf in order to learn what's working and what's not. And here we are in episode four, the battleground of 2021. What is unfolding right now, state by state, across the U.S. is unprecedented. It seems like every week there is more gut-wrenching news on another state passing anti-wolf programs another hunt going over quota, and another protection lifted. After a couple decades of progress, states like Idaho, Montana, Wisconsin, are going in the completely wrong direction at horrifying speed. The root catalyst of all this is the federal delisting that took place in November and went into law in January. As if Trump and his administration hadn't already done enough to decimate the environment after rolling back over 100 environmental protections during his four years, he went ahead and took wolves off the federal endangered species list as one of his final acts in office. Why? Well, pure politics. Look, nobody should be surprised that someone like Donald Trump signed off on a bill with total disregard for science and data. This is a man, after all, who publicly bragged that he passed an IQ test designed to see if one has dementia. But what's happening across the states using this opportunity to turn on wolves is no different. It's a combination of politics, misinformation, and cultural hatred rearing their ugly heads. Complicating matters even worse is the toxic cocktail at the policy level of a growing ideological and political divide across federal and state legislature, making it harder than ever to find civil discord and reason. The political middle where many think most true progress is made, is increasingly becoming a vacuum. Wolves have little to no margin for error. 
Going into the year, there were an estimated 6,000 or so gray wolves across the lower 48 states, living in just 10% of their natural original range. Even prior to federal delisting, the remaining wolves are subject to illegal hunts, continued habitat loss, lethal intervention due to livestock conflict, and genetic diversity challenges we learned in episode 3. In Wisconsin, 20% of their wolf population was wiped out in 60 hours in February. I'll say that again. 20% was wiped out in 60 hours. In Idaho, a bill is now passed into law declaring that 90% of the state's wolf population is to be hunted and killed. In this fourth and final episode, we look at the negative turn of events in Wisconsin and Idaho, as well as what's working in Oregon and Washington, despite, as we'll learn, still more room for progress. So what can be done to reverse these recent trends? How can those on the wolf protection side reach across the aisle and find ground with those who oppose for coexistence? Is finding some common ground with those who oppose wolves even possible? And what do we do if it's not? The battleground of 2021 begins right after the break. Before we get into it, let me remind you to please go and visit saveourwolves.org. Sign the petitions going to state and federal policymakers. Tell your friends and family to do the same. Or just keep listening and sharing this podcast. Because for every listen, we're donating $1 to their work. It's powered by the Center for Biological Diversity, our partners in making this podcast series happen. Again, that's saveourwolves.org. Let's start this episode by revisiting the logic the anti-wolf community typically uses for justifying killing wolves. Number one, wolves kill livestock which hurts people economically. Number two, wolves kill wild prey, such as deer, elk, and moose, threatening their numbers. Number three, wolf populations will grow out of control if left unmanaged. Number four, wolves are a threat to us and our pets, something we'll dig into a little more in Wisconsin. Number five, the government should not be allowed to tell me what wildlife I can or cannot hunt or how to manage my land This is my God-given right. Number six, I hate wolves. I don't want them here. What we have found in researching this series is that there's not a lot of merit behind reasons one through four. There's some admittance to reason five, and reason six is probably the biggest culprit, although no one wants to accept it. Now, number one, wolves do kill livestock. They absolutely do. We've said that throughout this podcast series. But so many of these depredations are preventable with non-lethal measures. And the volume of depredations that do happen are a tiny, tiny fraction of the livestock business. Furthermore, using lethal action to address depredation of livestock is often quite counterproductive. Oftentimes, lethal measures are not taken on the wolf that actually killed the animal. Just the first one a fish and wildlife official or hunter might find, making it completely senseless. For example, this February season, nine out of 10 of the wolves that were killed were taken more than 10 miles from the nearest verified livestock depredation site. So it's, it's not really an effective tool for dealing with those depredation issues. That's Peter David, wildlife biologist at the Great Lakes Indian Fish and Wildlife Commission in Wisconsin, who you'll hear from quite a bit later in this episode. And as Amarok Weiss from the Center for Biological Diversity pointed out, killing the wrong wolf can actually lead to increased depredation. 
We know from years of wolf biology research that because wolves are social animals, which animal gets killed in a hunt can make all the difference in the world as to whether or not that wolf survives. More often than not, if a breeder gets killed, the wolf pack will either split off into two smaller groups, which themselves may not maintain as packs, or they will totally dissolve entirely. We know that if breeders are killed, it affects uh, reproduction the following year. The pack may not reproduce the following year. We know that it affects what's called pup recruitment or survival. Fewer pups will survive. And so these quotas do not take into account the devastating effect on wolf structure, which then also doesn't take into account that this may be setting things up for even more conflicts with livestock, because with broken up smaller packs that don't know how to hunt wild ungulates well, it's easier for them to turn to easier prey to catch. So there's a lot of problematic outcomes of setting these quotas at all. The fact is wolves don't need to be hunted. They're an animal that regulates its own population. So, yes, while wolves do kill livestock, they don't kill them in numbers that really threaten that industry. Most of those deaths are preventable with non-lethal measures, and using lethal measures to counteract them is often counterproductive. And that brings us to debunking another rationale for killing wolves, that their populations tend to grow only to a certain point. Once they have filled out their range, Packs will actually maintain stable populations, because packs who grow too large and infringe on the territory of another will result in conflict. The biggest cause of death of wolves in the wild is other wolves. Now, when it comes to threats to prey species, we already learned in episode 3 that wolves actually work to strengthen the genetic pool for wild prey by feeding on the sick and weak. And again, the data proves this out. In Idaho, for example, elk populations are actually 8,000 higher as of 2020, than they were in 1995 when wolves first arrived in Yellowstone. I think one group that we really uh, want to target in Wisconsin actually are deer hunters, because I think there's a, a really strong argument that wolves are beneficial for deer in the long run. All the scientific data out there shows that wolves stabilize and even strengthen prey populations over time. So that leaves us with two primary drivers behind wolf opposition that seem to actually have merit. The first being, quite simply, that a lot of folks just don't like being told what to do or not do, which we've gotten a crash course in via our train wreck of a public health response to COVID. And there is an intricate political system in place to ensure these so-called freedoms are maintained. Freedom to do what you want, when you want, regardless of its impact on others. Yeah, I mean, I think you, you really listed the main players. The one thing I would add to the wolf side is there's also groups that I guess would call themselves animal rights organizations that would not uh, call themselves animal conservation organizations. I think that often our two groups work together. Um, so, so there is that added aspect. On the other side, I think that there are some forces that come into play in addition to the livestock industry and the sports hunting industry 
that come into play as a result of other political considerations. And, and this is what I refer to as deep pockets with ulterior motives. And by that, I mean things like the Koch brothers or the Walton brothers, the, the large funding sources that fund, fund congressionals, that fund hunting groups, and not so much maybe because they care whether or not wolves are hunted, but they know that the base of people who often want to have wolf hunting or wolf trapping are also people who view the wolf as a surrogate for their intense hatred of government intervention into their way of life. And really prefer that there were not legal protections in place for wolves. So you can take that whole surrogacy, the concept of we don't want federal government intervention, you can translate that into other things like corporations that don't want taxation, people that are worried about whether or not they'll be able to continue to be allowed to own guns, people who are concerned about the government saying, a vaccine will help keep us all safe. It's very easy to stir that pot when you are a, a big entity with a longer term goal in place. And then, of course, there's pure wolf hatred. What's sort of interesting is that as you knock off all of those traditional arguments about human safety and livestock and deer herd, and the response is kind of becoming, well, we're just want to do it because we want to. We just want to kill wolves, you know, and <laughs> I'm not sure I've thought this all through yet, but part of my response to that is if that's it, if that's your, the only thing you have behind it, first of all, I don't think that's an ethical position. You know, I think both the traditional sport hunting ethic and the Ojibwe worldview and many in most cultures, killing is not a casual thing. Anytime you take an animal's life, you should have some legitimate reason for doing it. And if you're just killing for fun, that's that's not appropriate. That's that's not ethical. The anti-wolf culture that permeates through much of rural America. In both cases, we're back to cultural issues. And when challenging someone's cultural beliefs, things like data and science are thrown out the door. So where does that leave us now that there's no longer any federal protection? Decisions are being made at the state level. For the purpose of this episode, we're going to walk through four such states Two of them on the right side of wolf protection, Oregon and Washington, and two on the wrong end right now, Wisconsin and Idaho. By looking at the policies and dynamics of these four states, we can extrapolate out to a larger picture of what is happening right now across the country. Just before diving in, Amarok Weiss teed up the framework that every state has historically used for managing wildlife called the North American Wildlife Management. So it's helpful to understand that most state wildlife agencies, I could probably just say all of them, manage wildlife in general, including wolves, according to a concept called the North American Model of Wildlife Management, which itself is also just a few decades old. It has seven different principles, and it essentially assumes that wildlife will be managed through hunting. And it, 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 it's, it's an odd lens today to be looking at wildlife conservation through, because I don't think that most people 
feel or assume that wildlife should be managed through hunting, but it prides itself on the concept of the democracy of hunting. It's a pushback to you know, English rule when wealthy landowners could hunt on their land, but nobody else could, could hunt wild game there. Uh, and that, that's another term that's interesting because the North American model of wildlife management, which is called for short, the NAM, the NAM really does focus very much on what our agencies term are game species, huntable species, and it really doesn't take into account those species that aren't often hunted or for biological reasons really can't sustain hunting or people don't want to hunt them. So it's really not a conservation model, it's a hunting model. But just realize that that is the lens through which state wildlife agencies view wildlife. Animals which can be hunted or trapped or snared are the priority animals for managing. That's where they put the bulk of their time and their staff resources. In the case of another animal that normally gets hunting season set on it, a deer or elk, what the agency does is they set up management units throughout the state and they make calculations of how many deer or elk they want in that unit. And they make calculations on how many deer or elk could be killed through hunting by determining what ratio they want of how many females to males they want in that unit and by making a ratio of how many offspring per female they want in that unit. This notion of managing wildlife via hunting as your primary device is archaic and perverse. It reeks of speciesism that many human cultures, particularly colonial cultures, have long abided by. It's used even in the states that are far more progressive when it comes to wolf management. Two of those states are Oregon and Washington. Wolves went extinct in the wild in both states in the early to mid-20th century. In Oregon, a lone wolf had wandered back in 1999, and two more came through in 2000. But they were either ushered back out or killed. Finally, in 2008, the lookout pack settled in Washington, and in 2009, a pack settled in Northeast Oregon. In both cases, wolves arrived on their own accord. These were not reintroduction programs like we saw in Yellowstone. In fact, it was that very reintroduction in Yellowstone in 1995 that spawned wolves returning to their rightful range throughout the Rocky Mountains Pacific Northwest, and eventually ended up in Washington and Oregon in 2008 and 2009, respectively. Oregon actually started preparing for wolf arrival in 2005, as we learned from Zoe Hanley. Zoe is an environmental scientist and representative of Defenders of Wildlife. She lives right on the Washington-Oregon border, along the Columbia River, and has been supporting the wolf recovery in both states. As a response to wolves, wolf observations that started coming in in the early 2000s, Oregon actually started to prepare their wolf conservation and management plan at that time. And so their first plan was adopted in 2005, even though the first um, wolf pack wasn't actually established until or known to be established until 2009. And gray wolves were actually removed from the state endangered species list in Oregon in 2015. And so that's when the state fish and wildlife department decided that there were enough breeding pairs in the eastern portion of the state to sustain that population. And so the conservation and management plan was updated most recently in 2019 to reflect that change in state listing status. And wolves are now managed as a special status game mammal in Oregon uh, by the Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife. 
So at the end of 2020, there were a minimum of 173 wolves in the state, and uh, but most of those wolves are still in the eastern portion of the state. There's still very few packs that have made it uh, over to the widely available suitable habitat in the western portion of the state. So that's where we sit today in Oregon. Meanwhile, here's where things are in Washington. So even though the first wolf pack was established or known to be known to be occupying the state in 2008, there's only 132 wolves in 24 packs currently documented in Washington that the state is is counting. That's the minimum number of wolves in the state count at the end of 2020. But the Confederated Tribes of the Colville Reservation also have a few packs on the reservation lands. And so there's an estimated about another 30 wolves in that area as well. So relatively close to the same number of wolves, about 170 in both Washington and Oregon currently. But Washington is different because still listed as state endangered. And even given that status, the majority of the population, just like Oregon, is still in the eastern uh, third of the state, primarily in northeastern Washington. And uh, those wolves have been subject to lethal removal for conflicts with livestock for, for nearly the entire time period that wolves have existed in Washington since the 2011 Wolf Conservation and Management Plan was established for the state. And so that's, that's a little bit of a difference is that the state still considers wolves but their the packs can be removed for lethal control for depredating livestock throughout the state. So why have Oregon and Washington accepted the arrival of wolves with an eye towards seeing them more as an ally than a threat compared to neighboring states like Montana and Idaho? Well, a lot of it has to do with political leadership and the makeup of public sentiment. Well, I think the most basic fact in Oregon is it's a blue state. We have a Democratic administration. We've, we've had one since before the wolves arrived. We've got a population in Portland area on, on the west side that is environmentally knowledgeable and conservation-minded, and this political environment permitted the state and, the, and well, it, it permitted the state to try and get ahead of the ball on on wolves and to create a wolf management plan before wolves actually arrived, which they actually did although the plan was in many ways weak and faulty. But without this democratic, conservationist, liberal, environmentalist uh, political presence, of course, the result would be like it is in Idaho or Montana or Wyoming or even Utah. That was Wally Sykes. Wally played an instrumental role in Oregon's wolf program, leaning on a combination of public and private education. So when wolves arrived... All of us in the conservation world, we wrote about it, we talked about it, we, we put on educational events about it. We, there were wolf ambassador programs that were operating within the state, visiting schools and, and communities. There were county commissioners meetings, there were ODFW commissioners meetings that were always attended by a lot of wolf conservationists. So there was a lot of information presented to the public and a lot of educated, passionate, pro-wolf, pro-environmental arguments presented, and then that were covered by the media within the state. So that was important. Probably the most important single event that led to the climate 
if I may call it that, of toleration of wolves in Oregon was the suit beginning in 2011 by Oregon Wild, Cascadia Wildlands, and Center for Biological Diversity, which challenged the wolf management plan. It challenged their proclivity for lethal removal of wolves that um, predated on livestock. And this suit, which was based on interpretation of the wolf management plan, was likely to win. And so a judge put a, what the heck is it called, a moratorium on, on lethal action by the state. And so no matter whether wolves predated or killed or injured livestock or not, they were not to be lethally killed or, or, or lethally removed. So this put the aegis on uh, the livestock industry to come to some kind of a settlement before the suit actually took place to allow for what they call wolf management, which is usually translatable as um, some form of, of lethal action, either by, by the state, ODFW, or by the ranchers themselves legally. And so after about a year and a half of negotiations, the wolf management plan was rewritten, was rewritten and it emphasized the use of uh, non-lethal deterrence and management techniques before any wolf would be killed by the state. It also allowed ranchers to kill wolves if they were caught in the act of attacking livestock. So this was the kind of compromise that was worked out and it has been successful. Um, the state has still killed wolves. They've killed quite a few wolves at times. They've wiped out entire packs. They wiped out the Omaha pack in 2016 or 2014. They destroyed the Harrow Butte pack, oh, I think in around 2017 or 18, I can't remember for sure. But compared to what their initial reaction would have been by the state in lethal removal, the killing of wolves was was very much reduced. Now, these states use similar systems for deciding when lethal measures can be deployed, with Oregon adding a layer of a three-phase system based on wolf population strength that dictates the exact rules. Yeah, so for Washington, the requirement is that lethal control will be considered if there are three depredations, and that's either livestock deaths or injuries in a 30-day time period, or if there's four depredations in a 10-month rolling window. So meaning after the first depredation starts within 10 months of that, when that clock starts. In Oregon, it's a little bit different because management differs by recovery phase. So in the Western management zone under recovery phase one, which is a conservation phase because there's so few wolves there, Depredations won't be considered until there are four depredations in six months, whereas in the under-recovery phase three, which is considered a management phase because there are so many wolves there, lethal control will be considered after there have been only two depredations in nine months. And phase two is simply a transition phase between the two. And while both states do still use lethal measures today, there's growing momentum for focusing on non-lethal deterrence but it can be of a bit of an uphill battle convincing ranchers. The ranchers were forced, and, and you know some didn't need to be forced. Some were on board with using non-lethal techniques and so on. But the ranchers were in a position where it behooved them to use legitimate non-lethal techniques, flattery, ride boxes, especially range riders. And all these management techniques and tools were paid for by the state. And in addition to compensation paid to the ranchers for 
confirmed or probable wolf predations. And even for extra work that ranchers may claim because they've had to spend extra time out on their allotments in national forest, for instance, and they have to use gasoline in their trucks to get out there. So they, they ask for compensation for that and they generally get it. They also ask for compensation for missing cattle, which is more problematic from our viewpoint, from the conservationist viewpoint, because the number of missing cattle uh, is verified only by the by the owners of the cattle. And so we really can't determine, you know, what missing cattle are actually missing or whether they fall off a cliff or they ate something that poisoned them or, you know, whether a bear got them or a hunter shot them by mistake or they were rustled, we don't know. However, there's usually not enough money left over to pay for more than a percentage of the missing cattle claims because they're last on the list in the hierarchy of claims to be paid. So that's kind of the general aura within which the wolf population exists within Oregon. Zoe pointed out that while Washington's program is considered one of the best on paper, Oregon is better on non-lethal implementation. If you look on paper, Washington's 2011 wolf plan is widely considered one of the most progressive and well-rounded wolf plans um, that we have in the lower 48 states, whereas Oregon's is, is less palatable to the conservation community. But when you look at implementation, Oregon has actually taken those guidelines and really set some standards to go to livestock producers when they request lethal control and to say, you know what, we don't believe that everything was tried and that proactive non-lethals were implemented you know, at all or were implemented well enough. And so we're going to help you make sure that we can, you know, bolster those non-lethal tools and strategies, and we want you to participate in that. So because of that, that's one of the reasons why Oregon has not killed any wolves for livestock conflicts in the past two years. Sadly, as of last week, that statement from Zoe that Oregon has not killed wolves in response to livestock depredation in the past two years no longer holds water. The Oregon Fish and Wildlife Department hunted down two three-and-a-half-month-old wolf pups via helicopter. Their logic was that there's been an increase in depredations, and taking out the pups will lower a pack's food needs, and that this prevents these pups from maybe one day killing livestock themselves. This is awful. Killing two young wolves for fear they might one day kill a cow. How would you like to be convicted and sentenced for a crime you didn't commit because one day you might do it? This is minority port without any actual visions of the future. It's worth noting as well that in Oregon, wolves are not currently classified as predators, but rather special game mammals, which dictates that they are managed by the state wildlife agency, not the state legislature. In Washington, it's a little bit different. So even though that plan looks like a great plan on paper, the implementation, in my opinion, hasn't really been up to the same bar. So Washington is on the ground. They are, the state agency is implementing non-lethals and working with livestock producers, but they're really 
allowing that threshold for what's considered to be effective strategies to be uh, a little bit lax and lower than what Oregon is. And so they're approving lethal control in situations where not everything was tried and certainly in situations where the livestock producer was not actively collaborating and cooperating with the department and doing everything they could from the livestock husbandry side to prevent those conflicts. In Oregon, another advantage is that wolves are not currently classified as predators, but rather special game mammals, which dictates that they are managed by the state wildlife agency, not state legislature. As long as that classification remains, they would not be subject to, say, a sudden shift in political power at the legislature level. Still, there are other things to address as well. Here are a couple suggestions from Wally. The game list and be more rigorous in the enforcement of, of poaching. We also still have issues where proposals in these states are out to stop protecting wolves once recovery goals are met. This is happening in Northeast Washington, which is a foolish system that just creates an ongoing cycle of recovery and reduction. When we know scientifically that wolf populations do not keep growing exponentially. I brought this up in my chat with Zoe. I also noticed that in eastern Washington, there are proposals out there to delist wolves since recovery goals have been met. And I'm curious to get your reaction to this because it seems, I, I guess, frustrating is the word I would describe it, that we sort of, as soon as we, you know, kind of get to these not totally arbitrary, but somewhat arbitrary, you know, numbers and quotas on on what recover, what symbolizes recovery, we're ready to basically delist them and allow them to be pushed back to the brink again. And then we need to do recovery again, because a lot of the data shows that wolf populations are fairly self-regulating at certain thresholds because, you know, they, in the wild, right, they, their biggest threat is other wolves, you know, packs compete for territory and they, there's just not a lot of data or documentation that shows that wolves will just keep growing to crazy numbers to the point where they overtake and, you know, completely change an ecosystem in a negative way. They, they in fact, do quite the opposite. So am I right to be frustrated by kind of, you know, seeing proposals to delist wolves when recovery goals are met? And do you think, or, or, or is that the, is that, is that the right thing to do? And if it's not like how, how do we get past that kind of like school of thought? No, you're correct. It's it's not the right thing to do. And and it is challenging to see those proposals continually crop up. But again, it comes back to to what folks think works and what people think living with wolves looks like. And so when you've got folks that are out on the landscapes that think that the best way to live with wolves is to implement a regulated harvest season because they think that's going to keep the population at a quote-unquote manageable level, which isn't true because, as you just mentioned, wolves are self-regulating and so their populations do not just grow out of control. And then they also want more. A lot of it is about a feeling of control over the situation. So there's many folks in that area that don't believe that non-lethal tools are going to work in the short term or in the long term. And they think that lethal control in response to repeated depredations is the solution, when in fact it's not. It's it's really a short-term Band-Aid. That's excellent wolf habitat up there. Wolves are going to continue to recolonize the areas. It, and 
it's been shown that when you the wedge pack has been removed multiple times, the profanity peak pack, now the kettles pack, has also been lethally removed multiple times. And sometimes in less than a year, wolves, new wolves are in those areas. And so wolves are there. They're here to stay. And we have some real opportunities, successful opportunities and, and tools and strategies to live with them. But we just need to continue to work with these communities to show them that that's possible. And that brings us to the darker chapter of this episode, Wisconsin and Idaho. As stated in our introduction, these two states have seized on the federal delisting to return to the same gruesome, mindless killing of wolves that led to their disappearance in both states in the first place. In February, 20% of Wisconsin's estimated 1,000 wolves were slaughtered in 60 hours. In Idaho, the governor signed a bill declaring that 90% of the state's wolves need to go. It's not just the legalized killing that is disturbing. It's the liberation of any and all killing methodologies. In Idaho, they've returned to open trapping and snaring, as well as aerial hunts, typically from helicopters. Even most major hunting organizations condemn aerial hunts as completely unethical, including in Idaho. But as we'll learn, those who pushed the bill forward had no interest in even having a conversation with any opposing view, including opposing views in their own party. In Wisconsin, they utilize hound hunting, a practice that is tradition in the state. Hounds are released in large numbers to chase down and fatigue wolves in what amounts to no more than pure psychological and physical torture. Hounds are also used to kill bears, and oftentimes, hounds released to go after bears will run into wolves. And while technically hounds are not allowed to kill, only track, hound-wolf conflict happens all the time. And as we'll learn, the wolves always lose. They either lose to the hounds themselves physically, or if they're lucky enough to defeat them and survive, they lose to the vengeance of the hound owner. So let's start in Wisconsin. To better understand what's happening in the state, we need to travel back to 2011, when Congress started pulling back wolf protection and ultimately ended up doing so in the Great Lakes region, including Wisconsin, in January of 2012. I think we, I think we were all, all of us who've been doing wolf conservation for a long time. First of all, we're just floored by what happened when Congress intervened and stripped wolves of federal protections in 2011 in Idaho, Montana, portions of Oregon, Washington, and Utah. And that was simply a matter of Congress, for the most part Republicans, but also some Democrats who thought that all the lawsuits going on back and forth shouldn't be allowed to continue, that there should not be a judicial determination of whether or not the agency charged with overseeing wolf recovery was actually following the science and following the law. So Congress stepped in and stripped wolves of protections. They added a rider onto a Department of Defense Appropriations bill, which is the kind of bill that's gonna pass no matter what you think of wolves or don't think of wolves. And the writer said that their delisting could not be challenged in court. And you think about that, taking away the ability to challenge in court conservation of a wildlife species that is supposed to be decided based on science. I mean, that, that's fundamentally undemocratic to do that. And you see these things happening all the time with wolves. So we were floored by that. And then immediately, those states, Montana and Idaho. But it wasn't just wolves in the northern Rockies that now face hunting seasons back then. The following year, in 2012, 
The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service stripped wolves of protections in Wisconsin, Minnesota, and Michigan. So those states also held wolf hunting and or trapping seasons in 2012, 2013, and 2014 until a federal court restored protections for wolves in December of 2014. However, the stage was set in Wisconsin for if and when federal protections fall, they essentially made it a mandate that wolf hunting resume any time the delisting happens without needing to go through a separate process at the state level to reassess the current dynamics. And that has led to the horrific killings this February following the January delisting. So that even though wolves were added back to the endangered species list in 2014, when they were removed in 2021, Wisconsin hunters were all too ready to pounce. Here's Peter David again. Anyway. Well, actually, the, the problem in Wisconsin is that they passed a law back in 2012, the last time wolves that were delisted, that said any time wolves are not on the endangered species list, Wisconsin will have hunting season. So when delisting happened in, in January, when they actually came off the endangered species list, Wisconsin DNR, actually, I give them credit, did not want to immediately implement a hunt. The law says that the season will begin in November and, and run potentially as late as February. DNR realized that they were halfway through that window that you couldn't, you know, cobble a season together in a good way. And, and their initial attempt was to wait until November and to have sort of a thoughtful process to get ready for the first wolf season again following delisting. But this uh, lawsuit that was brought forth by an organization called Hunter Nation forced the, the state to act much more quickly. And, you know, in hunter lingo, essentially forced them to go off half-cocked. They weren't really ready to implement this season. They, they pulled up quotas very quickly. Consultation with tribal governments that's required by the tribe's treaty rights cases was not adhered to in any way, shape, or form. And then there were a number of aspects in this harvest that were really new wrinkles that the state hadn't dealt with before, primarily the, the very heavy use of hounds for killing wolves or for hunting wolves. And that led to a, a rapid overshooting of the quota. And so sort of the biological numbers here, the, the estimate of the wolf population in Wisconsin prior to the February season was right around 1,100 wolves. This date indicated that their intent was to have a season that didn't really affect the population, didn't really, wouldn't really decrease it or increase it, but sort of keep it stable where it was. We know that that's not what happened. And so very rapidly in 60 hours, 20% of the state's wolf population had been harvested. And that was uh, 86% over the quota that was established for state harvesters. I would also note that that's the direct reported legal harvest. Undoubtedly, there was some illegal harvest taking place. And then there's, there's animals that are uh, maybe wounded or crippled and not retrieved. So some additional mortality on top of that. One of the complexities of this year's wolf hunt was the timing. The period designated for wolf hunting back in 2012 in Wisconsin is November through February. When the delisting happened in January, all conservation biologists and even some on the side of wolf hunting cited it was too late in the season and protocols and quotas would not be too would be too rushed. That hunting should resume in November of 2021, so time is allowed to properly plan for the right parameters. Unfortunately, the most advent hunters steamrolled their way through this pushback, 
worried they could miss their precious short window to kill wolves and collect their trophies in case the Biden administration added them back to the federal protection list before November of 21. That group that brought the lawsuit forward was led by Hunter Nation. The lawsuit itself was by this group called Hunter Nation. I'm not even sure I personally would categorize them as a hunting organization. They're, they're more of a almost a gun rights group than a legitimate hunting group. Very, very political, very, well, I, I, I probably won't comment on them too much, but I would suggest you take a look at Hunter Nation's website. Well, I did just that. It didn't take me long to find a slew of social media posts from the senior board members of this organization to get a sense for what they're really all about. The joy they take in killing wildlife and seeing them suffer and die. And how easy and convenient it is for them to disguise this as conservation and land stewardship. Siding with anecdotes over peer-reviewed biological data, because of course the latter doesn't support their case whatsoever. Now let me read a couple of these posts for you to get a picture. One of their board members, Keith Mark, recently retweeted a Washington Post article citing that the deadly heat waves of the summer will continue because of climate change. And he retweeted it with laughter. A steward of the land laughing at the mention of climate change. Another leader of the organization, Mark Geist, has front and center on his profile the following quote. Fellow hunters, unfortunately the wolf is at our door. United, we can defend our hunting heritage. Notice no mention of wolf depredation of livestock or prey, just the right to hunt them. Mark also posted on Instagram, to all the fathers out there who don't hunt, fish, or shoot, happy Mother's Day. Somehow this guy managed to be misogynistic, gender ignorant, oppressive, and environmentally ignorant all in one post. The Wisconsin DNR, the Department of Natural Resources, issued over 1,500 permits in February to kill wolves. Oh, and by the way, those permits don't limit the number of others you can take along with you. The result? A hunting quota set of 119 was blown away with 216 deaths in those 60 hours. And that is only what was documented. It does not include wolves severely injured or killed unofficially. It also doesn't account for the damage done to this year's breeding season. In addition, this season was really different from any wolf season, I think, anywhere in history, and that it was entirely nestled into the wolf's breeding season. And as a result of that, the, the devastating impacts of this harvest were not just limited to the current generation, but really to the next one as well, because there are pregnant females being harvested. There are other important pack, you know, the alpha males and even the subadults in the pack, they're all important in contributing to recruitment of the pups in the next generation. And so there is undoubtedly going to be a significant impact on recruitment of pups this year. And we don't frankly know exactly how bad that's going to be. This is such an anomaly. There's not a lot of precedence to look at for it. But it's probably reasonable to think that recruitment might be reduced by a third or more. So the, the impact of the February season is still really being felt right now on the landscape. While the state of Wisconsin is beginning the process, or is actually fairly far into the process already of preparing for a hunt that will begin this November, hitting this population again. The sheer hatred and violence here is hard to put into words. 
And this brings us to a very important special interview I want to really highlight in this episode. Philomena Quebec. Philomena is an attorney, an environmental advocate, and member of the Anishinaabe community in northern Wisconsin, a group of culturally related indigenous peoples. Aside from the wolves themselves, this sudden rush back to extermination of wolves is hurting native communities above all others, as if they need to suffer any more at the hands of oppressive American political forces. So that's our that's our traditional greeting. My my government name, my English name is Philomena Quebec, and I'm from the Bad River Band of Lake Superior Chippewa. I you know I have a I have a clan. My I have a you know a family. I live here. I've I didn't grow up as as Anishinaabe. We we understand that our one of the, you know one of the one of the instructions that we received from from the creator in this you know kind of beginning time is that Mayingan wolf is a we have this we have this really direct relationship to Mayingan as Anishinaabe as as Indian people and uh, you know the story goes is that you know, there's this this is like a really shortened version of it. And like, I, I don't have the very, I don't have the long version in the language, but there was a flood, you know, we have our flood story. And when that, when that flood subsided, that flood subsided because the muskrat was able to go down all the way down this very humble creature. The muskrat was able to go down to the, to where the earth still was and, and hand Wainabuju, which, which is our the first like spontaneous, like first kind of Anishinaabe that lived on the earth. He was kind of a magical creature. He was part spirit and part part human. But Muskrat handed Winnebuju this, this piece of earth. And then that earth was put on willingly on the, the, the turtle's back. The turtle offered her back. And so that earth was put on there. And then, you know, the the there was a new earth and and the creator instructed Wainabuju and Mayingan to walk together on the on Turtle Island, you know, this continent here, and name all and name everything that they saw. And during that, you know, during that walk, we became one and and we became close and loved each other like family. And that that love is something that we still have, you know, that that love and that that feeling of family, that feeling of brotherhood that we have with Mayingan. And so at that, at the end of that period, there was instruction that we would separate and um, go our, go our own ways. And then our fates would be tied, you know, so whatever happened to one would happen to the other. And at some point we would both be feared and we would both be hated and we would both be hunted to near ex extermination and you know and so that was that was that teaching that we were given a very long time ago and it's passed passed on down and and so today you know we 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 suffered through that hunt and my teacher my teacher passed away the first day and I don't I don't see those things as coincidence like I don't I don't believe that that's a coincidence like that was that was that was something that occurred almost as a matter of purpose you know, on the part of people who who wanted to hunt the wolves, many of them hold that same animosity against 
our people as native people, as Anishinaabe, and they don't want us to, they don't want us to be here, frankly. Peter David, who you heard from earlier and works at the Great Lakes Indian Fish and Wildlife Commission, shared a powerful perspective as well on how hurtful these hunts are to the Ojibwe people, one of the communities within the larger Anishinaabe family. Yeah, there's so many levels to this question. You know, a quick one, obviously, this is what happened here in February immediately. Did a, did a lot to break down trust between the, the state and the tribes right now. And that's, that's going to take time to repair. And I think how the state decides to go forth here in the fall is going to really greatly impact that further. There's a chance to do some, some healing, I think, there, and to take some steps back in the right direction. It's not clear at this point in time if that's going to happen or not. But on a, on a much deeper scale, you know, the relationship between Mayangan and the Ojibwe is an incredibly deep one. And it goes back to the tribe's origin story. And I imagine that Philomena talked about that. You know, and, and it does make it one of the hardest issues to dialogue even with the state about, you know. Biologists tend to use terms like just harvest and minimal viable population. That kind of language is offensive to traditional Ojibwe people who have a an understanding that their fate is tied to the fate of wolves. And so what you want for wolves is the same thing you want for your own community. And so to witness this this taking place in the woods, this 20% reduction in 60 hours and, and the savageness behind it, it's, you know, that it's an extremely painful thing to, to witness and to bear. The cultural philosophy of Anishinaabe people, like so many Native and Indigenous peoples across the world, is one of deep respect of the natural world, something we have completely disregarded in many modern civilizations. So the senseless destruction of anything in the natural world is highly offensive and hurtful to them. And it should be highly offensive and hurtful to all of us. We can learn a lot from Native people if we open our hearts and minds to do so. At the beginning of creation, as Anishinaabe, as Indian people, we were we were the last thing created and the most dependent on every other order of creation coming before us. And because of that, it's very important for us to continually express our humility and respect for all these different other, other beings that we share the earth with. As a society, we have chosen to push Native people out of sight. Rather than address 500 years of oppression and the dismantling of their culture and rights, we give them some small space to live and pretend all is well. We then go about our business exploiting that very land they live on and everything outside of it. The system has to stop. I will never personally be able to step in Philomena's shoes and begin to understand the pain caused by exploits such as the February wolf hunt in Wisconsin. So I asked her, and I applaud her for finding the strength to answer. Working on this issue is... to a certain extent, bearing the weight of 500 years of settler colonial violence. And it's, it can be really, really hard at times. I mean, this, the stuff that keeps me going is 
if, if you read the delisting decision itself that the Fish and Wildlife Service published back in December, it's based on nonsense. It's a lot of it is based on sort of this belief that Wisconsin is going to be doing the right thing and other states are going to be doing the right thing. Mm-hmm. So as an attorney, I mean, this, this, this was a, it was a really fun project. It was really fun to take it apart and then, and then critique the fish and wildlife service. And again, critique the, the, the Wisconsin you know, Department of Natural Resource, their their policies and their, you know, their their so-called science related to the decisions that are being made, you know, the decisions that were made in February and then the decisions that are being made for the for the fall hunt as well. So I mean as an intellectual exercise, it's been you know, it's it's been really, really fun to work on. And to a certain extent in order to survive this stuff, you have to compartmentalize it, you know, and, and you compartmentalize it and, and disassociate from, from it in order to kind of move, move the issue forward and all that. Philomena and I also spoke about some of the specific challenges unique to Wisconsin. She shared two helpful insights. The first centered around smaller farms and ranchers. The system today is not designed to help them with the cost and learning curve of implementing non-lethal measures. They're left out of the equation because the state does not subsidize and prioritize support in this regard. I tend to think this is by design, that those in power who want to see wolves gone recognize that supporting local farmers with non-lethal deterrence will actually damage their case to eradicate the species. There's a lot of the rhetoric related to anecdotal bits of information about wild livestock. On the livestock side, I mean, one thing that the tribe's have been noticing and making a point about is that USDA APHIS, which is in charge of providing compensation and then also doing the doing the kills of problematic predators like wolves, if they're, you know, if they're not endangered, really doesn't do a good job of supporting livestock, you know, the, the animal husbandry farmers with any sort of measures that are non-lethal. So there's, you know, there's, there's a lot of farmers who, especially up here, they're, they're really smaller operations and they're not getting any support. Well, I mean, I'm sure they're getting some support, but they're really not getting a whole lot of support from USDA programs because they're small. And, you know, it's, it's, I think I think APHIS could do a lot more work if you know if there was a will on non-lethal measures because there's a lot of research that shows there's there's a whole bunch of different ways to keep predators out of farmers' fields. Partly it's it's a matter of fencing and and really providing that the capital support for you know for these farms to have have solid fences, not I'm, I'm not saying solid fences, but, you know, strong fences that keep, keep, keep outside animals out. And then, you know, there's, there's flags that you can use and there's, there's other, you know, there's dogs that you can train. There's all kinds of different measures, but if you're a small operation, you're barely getting by. And 
you know, to have to invest your precious, part of your precious profits back into this infrastructure to protect against wildlife. I, I mean, I think that's a stretch, but you know, there, there could be federal programs that could help with something like that if there was a will to do so, but you know, the will, it seems like it's, it's just, let's, let's continue on with this, you know, with this European tradition of killing off the wolves and, and really not a lot of creativity into other kind of, you know, like, Ways that we can change, you know, move the agricultural needle so that there's, it's not just farm and woods, but we're, you know, we're working together, you know, like how can we work together to develop, you know, farms that work in these areas where we have apex predators and they're really necessary for the environment. And then we have the most confounding issue wolf advocates face in Wisconsin hounding dogs. The, the big issue in Wisconsin is the depredation of hounding dogs. So we have, Wisconsin has one of the most liberal regulations related to trained dogs to chase wildlife and use these wildlife, use these dogs for, for hunting. Oftentimes there's, there's a lot of, you know, oftentimes these, these people will target areas where they know wolves have dens and they'll bring their old dogs out there and the dogs will get killed and they'll get, I think, I believe it's a $3,500 um, payment from the state for any, any dog that's killed. And so these, you know, the, the hunters who use dogs, have a lot to say about how they hate wolves, how these how these wolves are going after their precious dogs. These dogs are their family, but yet they're using these dogs, which are you know fairly small. They're usually hounds, packs of them to, to chase after bears in the woods. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's pretty. So statistic. any anytime anytime a wolf kills kills one of these one of these hound dogs, it's a big deal for them, and then they get a bunch of money for it. So there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of animosity and, and a lot of false narrative that's been created around the, you know, around the, the impact that wolves have on, on hunting dogs here in Wisconsin. Talk about frustration. For one, let me remind everyone that hunting via hound dogs is not a ubiquitous practice across the hunting community. Many, many hunters and hunting associations firmly stand against this methodology seeing it as inhumane and only a tool for killing in volume. Yet not only do thousands of hunters in Wisconsin use hunting dogs, if a wolf dares to try and defend itself and avoid death and fights back, will they spin that around as policymakers for reasons to legalize more wolf hunts? This is the very definition of gaslighting. The hunting dog issue is problematic because obviously the best places to run dogs after wildlife are large blocks of public land, which is the same place that most people agree is the best place to have wolves. So there's going to be a conflict there. And, but it's important, I think, to realize that these wolves are providing important ecological benefits as opposed to a recreational activity that's really uh, participated by a very small percentage of people in Wisconsin. And it's it's interesting to me, I was just on a panel this weekend uh, that included a representative who was a hound hunter uh, and a trapper. And they asked both of those individuals, you know, why kill a wolf? 
And I, I was, their answers are really refreshingly honest to me. They didn't, they didn't claim that they were, you know, saving the deer herd or that this was a big livestock depredation. Their answers, both of them was, a wolf is a trophy. That's why we go after it. And the hound hunter added, interestingly, that, and are you interested in revenge? You bet. And that revenge really for this loss of, of hound dogs that are sometimes lost to, to wolves. You know, and, it, and that struck me to think that you have an individual who opts to put their dogs, you know, in harm's way from both the bears they oftentimes are pursuing and by wolves on the landscape. And then with that dog is injured perhaps or killed by a wolf being a wolf but there's a sense of that revenge is an appropriate response to that that's that's a very different kind of worldview i guess than than i've grown to appreciate here in the ojibwe community as a quick aside in 2017 in indonesia a couple locals broke into a crocodile sanctuary drunk and reckless and one of them not shockingly was killed the next day The entire local community stormed the sanctuary and slaughtered every single crocodile in name of vengeance. This is the same rationale being used with hounding dogs in Wisconsin. It's absurd. Imagine I broke into your house, starting to attack one of your family members, and you shot me in self-defense. But as a result of you shooting me for breaking in and attacking your own, my family is now allowed to come in and slaughter your entire family. That is what's happening here with wolves. As for livestock depredations in Wisconsin, yes, they happen. In 2018, it happened 33 times. Well, there are 3.3 million livestock in the state. So wolves killed one one thousandth of a percentage. And the number of, of cattle that are killed or maimed by wolves in Wisconsin in a year is about comparable to the number that go to slaughter every 30 minutes. I asked Peter if there's any chance of getting things corrected before the November hunting season, barring a miracle at the federal level. But he was not too optimistic. At best, he hopes the quota is set properly, taking into account the overhunting of this February and negative impact it's had on breeding season. Ultimately, Peter thinks it's a combination of getting the right people in power and the public being more vocal about their desire to protect wolves to make a difference. The last social survey that was done in Wisconsin back in 2015, I believe, indicated that about 70% of the state public wanted as many or more wolves that existed in the state at that time. The overwhelming majority of people in Wisconsin do not want to see wolves killed, which means those governing are not representing the will of the people they govern. They're serving special interest groups, namely a select group of hunters and ranchers. Now let's jump over to Idaho, the gem state, where public sentiment is not as kind to wolves and the state government has been following suit. As you can probably imagine, Idaho is very rural. Agriculture and ranching are a way of life in this Rocky Mountain state. Many in Idaho have opposed the presence of wolves dating back to that reintroduction in Yellowstone in 1995. It seems every time Idaho gets a window to hunt down wolves, they they do so. The mindset here very much mirrors that of old Stanley P. Young and the Western settlers, who we covered back in episode two. Times have changed, but cultural hatred towards wolves has not. Wolves have been doing quite well in the state under federal protection in recent years. There are plenty of elk and open lands for wolves to live on. But as federal protections vanish in January, 
Idaho's anti-wolf community took action. On May 5th, Governor Brad Little signed a bill into law legalizing the extermination of 90% of Idaho's wolves, and to do so by basically any means necessary. There are just over 1,500 wolves in Idaho going into this breeding season, and this bill sets the target goal of just 150. That number's significant. Go below 150, and the law decrees that wolf management returns to the federal government. This is further proof that the target number has absolutely nothing to do with biological science and everything to do with cultural control. One of the senators I spoke with was Melissa Wintrow, a Democrat who opposed this bill, but is greatly outnumbered by the conservative majority in the state. If you look at Idaho, it's heavily agricultural. And when you look at the composition of the legislature, there are a lot of ranchers. And so, you know, those, those folks have a significant input and ability to, you know, make decisions and policy. But I do feel like in Idaho in general, there there does feel like there's a misunderstanding and myth and maybe mischaracterization as if, you know, a certain creature is evil or in their predatory nature acting outside of it or that's bad for humankind. But I do think everything in balance and I think it's short-sighted as a species, as humans, to really not protect all and try to conserve all species. I mean, as we, and, 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 and to my understanding, wolves are a valuable part of our ecosystem. I was reading an article about potential to, as they, like some of the uh, diseases that elk and deer carry mm-hmm. that maybe, you know, their predation might be a detractor in that, you know, I, yeah, I think you're right. There's just a lot of misinformation. And when we have these discussions in legislative bodies, there aren't a lot of facts about data and the overall picture. It's typically folks providing some anecdotal information, which I don't doubt is true about, you know, the, what they see is happening in their own ranches and their own cattle. Yeah. But as you said, I, you know, you, you have to think about out of, you know, millions ahead of cattle how many fall off cliffs you know how many of them die from disease i mean it's probably significant but we're just focused on that one predator i also spoke to senator ali robbie another democrat voice in the state and if you're wondering hey why didn't i talk to republican senators who passed this bill on oh i tried i reached out to literally all of them They have no interest in talking to any media on this issue, only releasing statements. Further proof that they know how weak their argument is. Well, I'm originally from Idaho, grew up here enjoying all the beauty that our state has to offer. And I grew up in a rural community as well. So now I, I live in more of an urban area in the Boise area, direct a nonprofit that prevents eviction and homelessness. So I spent a lot of time working on the ha- local housing crisis, which is very serious for Idaho right now. And anyway, ran for state office to try to bring up issues and address issues around the housing crisis to the state level and and here I am so um, and I am on agriculture resources and local government and taxation committees one of those statements was from Senator Mark Harris one of the bill's sponsors and I shared some of his highly disturbing words I'm going to read a quote from one of your state senators Mark Harris who is one of the bill's sponsors and it says referring to wolves they're destroying ranchers they're destroying wildlife this is a needed bill when you look at the data last year 
there were 84 deaths to livestock from wolves on record of a population of 2.73 million livestock in the state. And on the, you know, on the, on the elk side, let's say on the wildlife side, there's actually 8,000 more elk, um, according to the Idaho Fish and Game today than there were when wolves were reintroduced in 1995. So there doesn't seem to be any data that supports those like pretty, pretty strong statements. Are you under the impression that those that sponsored the bill are sitting on data that's just not publicly available or is... Yeah, we, that's really my only explanation for it. We did not get really any data at all. It was all anecdotes and folks who had been affected by it, but it was kind of all secondhand. So yeah, there is other data I would love to see it. I have not seen it yet. Mm. So far, just stories. In fact, the Idaho Fish and Game Commission also came out against this bill. That's one of the bodies that is supposed to actually govern wildlife management at the state level. So how did such a bill get expedited so quickly without any of the proper checks and balances? So that bill was a surprise to me. I'm on resources committee. The legislative session went about two months over what it normally goes over this year in Idaho. We had the longest session in Idaho's history, actually. So, But that came kind of day 100 at the last minute. We were really surprised. It was announced in resources committee. Apparently, folks from the ranch and cattle industry had been working on the bill and various versions of it for a month or two, and things were delayed up until that point. And yes, it was a big surprise. We didn't have a lot of time to prepare and review and consider all the various aspects of the the legislation. And, you know, the biggest concern right away was... The bill allows for killing and taking any wolves, essentially, for with any means necessary. By any means necessary, there's no limits as to who can hunt wolves, when they can do it, how. And it kind of runs counter to a plan that we already have in place between the Idaho Fish and Game and the U.S. Forest Fish and Wildlife Service. So... We're, that was disappointing as well to see that it was counter to this plan that we had already had in place. Yeah. But, you know, it came out of, in Idaho legislature, the farmers and ranchers and cattlemen do have a lot of power in terms of lobbyist power. And Idaho is a very, very much an agriculture state. So it really came from that community that has had wolves kill a lot of their their cattle, their livestock, their cows, their sheep, etc. So that's really the only justification that we got from from it. And this is a, this is a highly politically charged topic. Oh heavens, you know, it, it's hard to have a discussion about this, I think because of the makeup of the state. I know that Senator Burtonshaw carried the bill on the Senate floor, okay. and I really like Senator Burtonshaw. He's a sweet man. He's, he's, he's just a really good person. He has integrity. I it's, I mean, I just, it's kind of, it's kind of hard to hmm. know that he carried it, but I don't, I don't know. I don't blame him. Now, I think there was a former senator that used to be in his seat. He was retired. That probably also was behind this bill, I think. The team that passed the bill claims that wolves were seriously depredating livestock. 
Yet the data suggests this is such a tiny fraction of livestock loss. It's actually 0.4% over a three-year average. And much of it could have been avoided with non-lethal deterrence. Moreover, killing wolves in response is actually proven to often increase depredation. Over a three-year average, wolves killed 0.004% of livestock. That's four one-thousandths of a percentage. Broken packs missing key leadership were turned to slower, easier prey like livestock. They claim that wildlife were threatened and wolves reduced hunting opportunities. Yet the elk population is stronger and larger than it was prior to wolves returning. So there must be larger forces at play here, right? We do have a lot of open land. I think we have more federal federally protected public land than any other state. So we do have a lot of a lot of open space, a lot of forests, which is great. And so instead of protecting those forests, um, the wildlife residing within them, I think the focus has, like some legislators in the past few years, there have been efforts to privatize public land, which would be a huge problem, I think, for our environment and for our you know state and people. Ah, there we go. Privatizing public land is definitely a factor. As we've learned in this series, Americans like control. They hate being told what to do. It's in our DNA. Laws protecting wolves are a threat to this, because wolves would require either land to remain in public use or for private landowners to be forced to abide by non-lethal deterrence. I mean, I'm really concerned about the uh, wolf population in our state. I'm hoping that we can file some lawsuits and really come to a better solution because, I mean, I'm concerned about no hunting limits. You know, you can kill as many as you want. No one doesn't have to report it. I mean, we could basically eradicate a species. And I, I just, I mean, that's short. You already stuff. did that once. <laughs> I mean, yeah. We've done it to many things. Yeah. It, 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 doesn't, it doesn't seem ethical. It doesn't seem humane. It doesn't seem wise by any means. And we have, to be, we have to use more data to make our decisions. And we have to stop thinking, you know, on the myth and myth, misinformation that we've been gathered. I mean, I, I mean, every year I've had to vote against that wolf management board every year. Why are we putting money toward this? So is there a way to turn Idaho around? You know, it, there's so many bills that this legislature passes that have to be handled in court. And that's sometimes the only hope I have is court decisions, quite frankly. And so the political will does not support the wolves in this state. You know, so we will have to rely on a lawsuit and hoping that, number one, it just goes too far and it, it's not using appropriate. I don't, I don't know what the case would be, but that, that's the only hope to stop this, quite frankly. This issue goes beyond Wisconsin and Idaho right now. In Montana, a bill was passed in April to reimburse hunters for expenses they incur when killing wolves, which is essentially a roundabout way of paying them to kill wolves, a bounty system. Back to the 19th century we go. In Wyoming, it's even worse. Wolves can now be hunted 365 days a year in 85% of the state. They're classified as shoot-on-site vermin. You're allowed to run them over with a snowmobile, or drop explosives in a den. Not kidding. Oh, and in that 15% outside of that 85%, well, wolf hunting is restricted to October 1 to December 31, which is plenty of time to all but exterminate them in one season. Look, things are bad right now. Real bad. At a time when it feels we are being hit wave after wave by bad, discouraging news nearly 18 months into this pandemic, 
This might feel like piling on, but the public needs to know. If you're listening to this, you need to share the information and do whatever you can to motivate those around you to stand up, speak out, and sign those petitions at saveourwolves.org. By now, you probably noticed that wolf policy seems to follow political lines. Democratic states like Oregon and Washington are on the side of wolf protection for the most part and have political and public support to do so. Republican-heavy states such as Wyoming, Idaho, and Montana are finding every conceivable way to kill wolves and wipe out the species. This is pretty telling in how senseless the violence is. The fact that political lines are all that it takes to determine wolf policy demonstrates there's absolutely zero biological data to support removing wolves. If there was, don't you think the anti-wolf community would use it instead of relying on individual anecdotes and cultural history? I don't subscribe to bucketing all Republicans as anti-environment or all Democrats as pro-environment. It doesn't work that way at all. There are plenty of conservative voices who stand against wolf hunts and are true stewards of the environment and advocates of addressing climate change. The problem, though, is at a national level, the powers that be of the Republican Party are consumed by the cult societal cancer that is Trump and his movement. And that national level is driving decisions at the state levels because folks are too afraid of what might happen if they distance themselves from the Trump machine. This dynamic is impacting many issues, not just wolf recovery. You're spot on where this is the way that politics are. I mean, in Idaho in particular, and in the way that it felt being a Democrat, you know, one of seven people in a body of 35 in the state Senate, where it was a lot of, you know, hurry up and wait kind of feeling where we didn't really know what was going on. Things were just coming out at us out of the blue. And when they came to us, you know, we tried to ask questions and, and speak truth to power and, you know, advocate for a more balanced solution, but we have no voice because they're just, the numbers just aren't there. And research does show that purple states that have more balance between both parties do come up with more compromise solutions because they have to, and they're beholden to their constituents to do that. We're in Idaho here are not there. We used to be that way. Actually, when I grew up, we had a a lot more balance between both parties. And it's, it's just not that way right now because of how things are on the national political scene. So you might ask, well, why doesn't the federal government just step in and relist them? We have a democratic administration, right? Well, I was curious about this too. I asked Amarok this very question. Yeah, it's not that simple. So it seems like it might be that simple and one wish it would be that simple, but here's a part of the issue. So if the delisting rule had not yet become final before Biden came into office, then yes, the Biden administration could have simply withdrawn the rule. So the rule was announced by the Trump administration, I think the first week in November, and then the delisting went into effect the first week in January. That was a final rule. It was already done. So the Biden administration did not have the power under the law to simply pull that rule. The Biden administration does have the ability to review the rule and decide whether or not they think it was correctly based on the law and correctly based on the application of science. U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has done an initial review, as President Biden directed them to do, and they are so far standing firm on their decision. And because we know that the rule is so flawed, I give 
this is an example of where U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has succumbed to the political pressure on it to delist wolves and keep them delisted. And so it's going to take something more than that. At the time they did their review, the Department of the Secretary, the Secretary of the Department of Interior, Deb Holland, had not yet been um, uh, confirmed through the Senate. And her role is to oversee the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service as well as other agencies. And then the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service Director, Martha Williams, had not yet been put in place at the time U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service did its review. So now Martha Williams is in place, Deb Holland is in place. Uh, we're pushing for an additional review to go back and look through it again. But the other thing is that you know we did file a lawsuit in January, as did 15 other organizations in several coalitions. So there's three lawsuits pending. And if the Biden administration declines to reverse the rule, we think we have very, very strong legal arguments as to why the rule should be reversed. Unfortunately, it takes a while for these things to play out in court. What are the potentials? One potential is that the government doesn't back down and a court ends up ruling in our favor. Another potential is that there are settlement negotiations that take place and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service is brought to its senses and they agree to withdraw the rule through the settlement process. We don't yet know how it's going to play out, but we do feel we have very, very strong arguments once again that the delisting is illegal. And let's be honest, it's not like things were all rosy and positive under federal protection. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has proved itself inadequate time and time again when it comes to protecting wolves under federal law. But even even under administrations that have not been explicitly anti-environmental, the Fish and Wildlife Service has, in many instances, as an agency, notwithstanding the many excellent, excellent and dedicated and conscientious biologists who work for the agency, the Fish and Wildlife Service has often had a, I can't do that attitude. We can't do that attitude. No, that's not how we've done it in the past. No, such and such industry would really be bummed out if we were to do it that way. Mm. And that has hampered its ability to face the dire extinction emergency that so many species and collectively that America's natural ecosystems are facing. The fact that we are that we are poised not just to lose an animal species or a plant species here or there, but the entire functioning, the, the complex biological, chemical, and ecological interactions, many of which are, are unseen by us or not fully understood, those are collapsing right now. I mean, one can look at the monarch butterflies, the, the great flights of butterflies that many people still remember, the common joy of seeing a monarch during their migrations. Now they're almost all gone, and they're still not on the threatened species list. And yeah. that's just one of many examples of, of, of intricate ecological and, and individual animal <coughs> behaviors and phenomenon that make up of the marvel of life that are disappearing in an extraordinarily short period of time. 
in a matter of just a few years, we're, we're going to see mass extinctions and ecological collapse. And the Fish and Wildlife Service has not been up to the to the task of addressing this this emergency. So what can we do about it? How do we go about reversing this insidious trend of 2021 and move not just back towards recent progress, but go even further in solidifying a place for wolves long-term across their rightful territorial range? Well, let's first dispel the notion of finding a way to convince the anti-wolf community that they've been wrong all these years. That their violent view of wild predators rooted in hundreds of years of culture and family history is something that should change. It's a lovely altruistic idea, but sadly, it doesn't seem all that realistic. Well, I sit on the Wolf Compensation Committee here in Willow County and have since its inception in 2010. So I, I do sit and talk to ranchers because there are ranchers on the, on the committee and, and there are hunters on the committee and there are county commissioners on the committee who are hostile to wolves. And I don't think that there's anything that I could say that would convince any of these people in Idaho or Montana to change their minds about wolves. I don't think they're susceptible to rational arguments. And, and part of it is political. I mean, they're, you hold them to the voters. And if the voters won't accept rational arguments and the politicians do, they'll lose their positions they'll be voted out and somebody else like Edmund Bundy will be voted in. So no, I, you know, I don't think that the ranchers can be convinced. I mean, you know, some ranchers are sympathetic to wolves. There are ranchers who have made big efforts to coexist with wolves and they go out and they spread the word to other ranching communities all around the West. And, and some of the ranchers listen. But as to those ranchers and politicians in states like Idaho and, and, and Montana and Wyoming who are active, actively involved in this effort to wipe out wolves, there's not anything I could say that would affect them as Ed Banks used to say that would make a little room in their hearts for wolves. The only effective argument would be one of political power. That are disappearing in an extraordinarily short period of time. In a matter of just a few years, we're, we're going to see mass extinctions and ecological collapse. And the Fish and Wildlife Service has not been up to the, to the task of addressing this, this emergency. Now, that doesn't mean it's not worth trying to find common ground. If we approach them with solutions that enable them to protect their business and lifestyle without needing to eliminate wolves, well, it's not going to convince all of them. Heck, it probably won't convince most of them, but it can work with some, and everything is progress. Getting ranchers and farmers to adopt non-lethal deterrence is one of the most important tools in the fight to protect wolves and collaboratively work together to save the species. Well, I think I'd like to say that I have a lot of friends that are ranchers and farmers. I have tremendous respect for the hard work that they do, admiration for their lifestyle, so I, I want to feel that I'm on their side. And I have many colleagues that are, are experts at helping ranchers deal with potential wildlife problems, whether it's mountain lions, grizzlies, coyotes, wolves, or whatever. And so there are, there are ways, methods, and techniques that things can be worked out in a, a very amenable fashion. For example, uh, large-sized guard dogs 
are respected by wild wolves. They would see them as a rival pack of wolves that's bigger and stronger than they are. We talked about the prey search image that wild wolves have. So normal wolves growing up in the wild, they want to hunt wild prey. That's why they do oftentimes walk by livestock. So there are many ways where wildlife advocates and ranch owners, farmers, et cetera, can work together in a really positive, productive manner. And I, I want to be on that side of the equation. So I, I, I think there's a, a lot of room for people to work to understand each other, to try to understand wolves and try to figure out ways that we can all live in harmony here. And that's why one of the reasons why I wrote my books, because I, I wanted people to have a better understanding of what the lives of wolves are really like in the wild, how they are they are a, a species that lives in a close-knit family like ours are. They're trying to earn a living. In my experience, the, a normal wild wolf, their preference is to hunt wild prey. That's what they want to feed their family with. Not everywhere in the country is good habitat for wolves, so that's another issue too. If wolves are going to be brought back to places, you have to pick the proper areas where things uh, have a really high likelihood of success. So there's a lot of ways that we can work together if we're willing to listen to each other and be respectful of each other. So that's the side of the equation that, that I want to be on personally. So non-lethal tools are essentially pieces of technology that people have created that can either help establish barriers between human interests like livestock and predators such as wolves, or there are things like scare devices or biological boundaries such as putting out wolf urine. And so there's a whole, what we call many tools in the toolbox that are available, everything from these scare devices to having human presence on the landscape in the form of range riders, which are essentially modern day cowboys to try to create space and reduce the risk of predators killing livestock. So you're essentially increasing the, you're making it more risky to attack and kill livestock than it is risky to attack and kill wild ungulates, which are wolves' natural prey, such as deer, elk, and moose. Got it. Can you give me a couple examples of some of those technologies and the ones that maybe you think are most effective? Yeah, absolutely. So what's going to be most effective depends on the landscape. So there's some tools that have been uh, shown to be pretty effective on small pastures, calving pastures, for example. And so those things can be a fladry, which is just a polywire with sometimes it's electrified that has hanging red flags on it. And so those flags wave in the wind. The wolves don't know what it is. They don't want to cross that perceived boundary. And when it's electrified, if they go up to it, they'll get their nose zapped. And so in certain situations in small areas where it's easy to put up those that flagging, that can be really effective around small pastures and paired with scare devices, such as radio activated guard boxes or rag boxes, which just emit light and sound when a radio collared wolf comes in proximity with the box. Those can be really effective to ensure that wolves and other predators are not attacking livestock in small pastures. But on larger landscapes, one of the most effective tools 
appears to be range riding. And so again, that's really having a human out on horseback or sometimes ATV when the landscape allows during the times of day when wolves are going to be most active. So during dawn and dusk and sometimes even the nighttime hours to try to go out and sometimes be a human presence, a physical barrier between wolves and livestock. And then those individuals can also help monitor how wolves are using the landscape and where they're spending most of their time in an effort to move bunch and move cows out of those areas. And one of the things that we're, we're really starting to dig into that's very exciting for me as a researcher is to try to look at the relationship of bolstering some of these non-lethal tools with strategic grazing practices that can make them more effective. And so what I mean by that is, what if we not only go out and put different technologies on the landscape to try to keep these animals separate, but we remind the livestock how to act more like wild prey and to defend themselves. And so there's there's things like rekindling the herd instinct, so reminding the mother cows to stay close to their calves and teaching them to bunch up and face out like bison do. And so and teaching them to to bunch in small groups and to stay in one area so that it's easier for humans to come out intermittently and move them across that landscape as opposed to those cows spreading out over many, many miles, which makes it hard to find them and then to protect them. And so there's really some livestock management practices that are called like holistic grazing practices that not only reduce predation risk, but can actually also help support ecosystem resiliency and reduce the impact of grazing on some of our sensitive ecosystems. Building on that last point from Zoe, it's also been proven in the world of regenerative farming that utilizing controlled grazing, where livestock rotate each day to specific areas of land and are not allowed to backtrack until a set given time, has proved fruitful for soil health. This was shown in the Netflix movie Kiss the Ground. We also need the right people in the right positions. Your vote matters, especially at the local and state levels, and so does your voice. Continuing to build public support is key to getting those right folks in office. You want to try to get well uh, educated, science based people and ethical people into power to make good, sound decisions. But you also want a, a force, I think, of public sentiment behind that, pushing for that. Public education, I think, actually does work. It's slow, it takes time. And, and you don't change many of the minds that are already set in place, uh, but you can change some of those that are un, uncertain or those who are still forming their opinions. And so that, that changed, you know. It can be sort of generational even, I think, but it does happen. And I think that like that social survey, that social survey that I mentioned out of Minnesota, you know, if that same thing had been done 25 or 30 years ago, I don't think you would have had those kinds of numbers. But but people are getting the message slowly and it's coming around. I think one group that we really uh, want to target in Wisconsin actually are deer hunters, because I think there's a, a really strong argument that wolves are beneficial for deer in the long run. You know, these things co-evolved with each other. 
and uh, wolves and deer really have a, a, a co-beneficial relationship. And in Wisconsin, for example, where we have chronic wasting disease, which is a serious threat to the deer herd that hasn't largely extended into the areas that are heavily occupied by wolves. And if we can convince deer hunters that, you know, chronic wasting disease is potentially a threat to every deer in the, in the state. And if wolves can help us with that, that would be a tremendous benefit. And, and what was really telling to me, we had a county in northern Wisconsin had its first CWD positive in the deer herd announced in January. And in this February hunt, one month later, six wolves were killed within three miles of that township. You know, so one of the best tools we may have had to keep that, that outbreak from spreading was immediately wiped out. So I do think I do think there are ways to get out and to and to continue the educational change, and I think that's an important thing in the long run. But in the short term, you certainly do also want to try to have have strong, well-trained people making the right decision. That public support also requires education. On a long-term lens, we need proper environmental education in public schools. It's crazy to me that we still teach kids woodshop and nothing about climate change or that we focus sexual health on the anatomy instead of learning how to ask for consent. We need to update our public school systems in so many ways. It started in school. Starting in like fourth or fifth grade, they started scientifically based instruction on the sophistication and interconnectedness of all the elements of ecology, of, of an ecosystem, of a biosphere. And they continued this up you know, through high school graduation, yes, that would have an effect. But the curriculums are overseen by local school boards. And the members of the school board are joined from the community. And if you have a community that's, you know, agricultural, you know, ranching community, hunting community, then up until this point, as far as I can tell, those kind of school board members will be in a minority that would, that would allow or encourage such instruction. So it doesn't happen. And let's be frank, we need the Fish and Wildlife Service to get their act together and do their job. To stop merely managing wildlife on behalf of big agriculture and start protecting ecosystems on behalf of public health and well-being. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service still all too often defers to working with states on building localized plans first taking the reins on a national level to protect the species and telling the states how they're going to follow suit. The wand I would wave would be for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to finally develop a national wolf recovery plan and to take action in all the places where there is still good habitat for wolves, which is lots of places. That's what I would like to see is the U.S., the federal agency that is mandated with responsibility to recover endangered species to do what is really needed to bring this endangered species back to full ecological recovery. And when we do recovery programs, we need to do them in such a way that actually sets wolves up to succeed. Uh, you know, if you could sort of, you know, I guess wave a magic wand and, you know, implement like what are the one or two, and I hate to boil it down to one thing, so it can be one or two or three things that come to mind are like the biggest priority issues that you would like to see changed or done in order to aid in recovery, successful recovery and reintroduction of the Mexican gray wolf. What are the things that stand out to you of like, these are the things I, I think we should tackle first. Uh, these are the priorities that, that need to be dealt with in order to aid in 
their recovery programs and make them more successful. Wolves should be allowed to roam at will without being arbitrarily, you know, confined within a, within a, a political line. Their numbers should be allowed to increase. Currently, the Fish and Wildlife Service has a cap on the number of wolves they tolerate and a pledge to remove by whatever means necessary, a sinister sounding phrase, any wolves above that arbitrary number, that that kind of cap is is highly pernicious. And among other damaging things, well, first of all, it goes completely against the tradition of, of, of wildlife management in the United States, but it also will do further damage to the genetics uh, of the Mexican wolf. And we need a, a recovery program that include that uh, calls for a much broader area to be to be occupied by wolves, and requirements that livestock owners protect their own animals rather than wolves getting scapegoated for conflicts that are easily preventable. So there's a, a little sweet, certainly not the long and short of it, but there's there are some of the important reforms that need to take place in that. The Center for Biological Diversity is pushing for. We need things working properly at the state level as well. We need state wildlife agencies and their commissions to focus on what's best for the species and regional ecosystem resiliency rather than special interests. That's when recovery will be successful long term. As for the livestock industry, we need to make changes. We need to hold it to a higher standard on regenerative practices and working within the larger ecosystem, not taking it over. And we're going to have to make it smaller and eliminate the factory farming version of this industry. It shouldn't be the staple of the American dinner plate. It should be a delicacy that can be enjoyed on occasion and abide by strict environmental standards. Point about shifting what beef means to people, perhaps where it is on the plate is key. You know, I mean, I I wouldn't, I, I, I believe that any reduction is important. But you know how do we how do we achieve those goals with perhaps a total long term goal of, of completely rethinking what meat means to us? Well, obviously, first there's a challenge, as you noted. You know, one of the reasons beef in particular is so important is that it is kind of woven into our national identity and DNA through that story of the American West, right? When we think about the cowboy, when we think about you know the expansion of America, beef was there the whole time, and so it has these deeply powerful meanings for people. Now, as far as how to change it. I think recognizing the kind of playbook used by industry or ways people naturalize or justify it so that we can counter that. So good example, whenever people, whenever the industry in the 19th century or today saw people criticizing what they do, they turn it into like fears about about people taking away your hamburgers. So, you know, conservative politicians have said like, oh, liberals are coming for your hamburgers. That's a playbook that dates back to the 1890s. Meatpacker said the same thing. And so seeing that strategy and saying, no, we're not coming for hamburgers, we're reframing how this is produced and perhaps a little bit at the margin or eventually maybe how you relate. That's Josh Specht, who joined us in episode two and as a professor and author of Red Meat Republic. We should also fund innovation in this space. From advancing technologies that deter wolf livestock conflict in ethical ways to experimenting with, say, insurance models. There's a small town in Nepal that famously was losing snow leopards because they were going after livestock, and those livestock owners were killing them in record numbers. They implemented an insurance system that livestock owners paid to be a part of. Well, guess what happened? Those livestock owners hated paying the insurance premiums initially because they knew the leopards were not actually killing their sheep and ox in large numbers. 
And as the data proved out, insurance premiums went down. They then settled at an acceptable rate, and years later, both snow leopards and livestock are thriving. Now, of course, the United States at whole, and, and even individual states, are way more complex than a small town in Nepal. But there's evidence that this model can work. Finally, we need to get outside and reconnect with the natural world. As societies worldwide continue to urbanize, we're losing this connection and any feeling of responsibility for maintaining it. This may sound a bit hand-wavy coming from me, so I'm going to let Philomena explain her point of view here. I don't care if you're Native or you're non-Native. You know, like being everyone, everyone has a right to a connection to the natural world. You know, everyone, everyone has the right to learn about these gifts that are freely given outside of capitalism. You know, these these plant beings, like, I don't know, all these like dandelions, holy powerful dandelions. And they're I, I don't believe they're they're native species. I, I believe they came they came from a different continent. But what an incredible plant, you know, they, you can eat all parts of that plant. They're beautiful. They're full of sunshine. There's bitters, there's sweetness, and they proliferate everywhere. They're just begging for us to engage in the magic that they offer, right? So, I mean, I think if, you know, if we are to survive as human beings, and I, and I believe that's an open question, it's going to require a different kind of mindset. And it's going to require us as people to relearn the simple things, you know, those simple things that make us so happy. I mean, I, as a child, you know, we all, we all have, we all have that the, the connection that we have to the earth as a child comes so natural and then it's sort of educated out of us, right? We all go through this experience where the only thing we want to do is swim in the lake and play with the sand and, you know, run around and, and like create fantasy things using sticks and weeds and, and flowers and those sorts of things. I mean, I think as children, we're, we're kind of losing that faster and faster with YouTube and, and, you know, screens everywhere, screens and games and all of that. So, I mean, as much as we can, as much as we can preserve that innocent childhood for our children and then extend it, you know, beyond as much as we can learn to be generous and, and, you know, and really fight for one another and, and, you know, I, I, we all have it in us. I don't think any of us is, is a lost cause. Like every one of us has, you know, this is, this is just the instructions that we have as human beings. And, and many of us through, you know, culturalization and, you know, like really a, a process of enslavement of, of people that took place in Europe with, with the feudal system. And, and before that, you know, if you, if you look at the Greek system that created, you know, citizen class and everybody else was basically property. I mean, th this, that was maybe before that, I don't know. I mean, but, but those, those sorts of, you know, the, the, 
the civilization that occurs or the civilizing process that occurred, you know, in order for some people to maintain control of others and then, you know, manifesting in the, the horrific, you know, the, the horrific centuries of American slavery, you know, like all of that, we, you know, it's, it's, as Americans, like that's the legacy that we're living with. And, you know, it, it manifests today. We have, you know, we have this billionaire class of people and then so many people just barely surviving and, and trying to get by indigenous people here, you know, kind of most of us are, are, are just living on this survival thing, barely surviving many of us. And, 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 you know, through this through this process of civilization, we've learned this value system that values money before everything else, and people who don't have money are not valued. And we have to unlearn all those things. Mm-hmm. We have to unlearn all those things if we're going to survive. Earlier this year, a wolf named OR93 wandered from Oregon and into California, going as far south as St. Louis Obispo. It's been fascinating to witness. But as Amarok points out, it's in his best interest to retreat back up north to safety. I would like Error 93 to take that map in his head, do an about face, go back through San Luis Obispo County. Do you know he's there now? He's he's crossed 101. I would like him to safely I would like him to safely cross 101 and get back into Monterey County and then safely cross Interstate 5 and get into San Benito County and then safely cross 99 and get back into the eastern foothills of Fresno County and then head north and get back up in the area of Lassen and Plumas and Siskiyou County. So a year from now, it would be just past mating season. So I would hope that 10 months from now, he would be back up in that area and he would find a female wolf who was one of the, you know, a one to two to three-year-old offspring of the Lassen pack. Or he would meet up with another female wolf that had just crossed the border from Oregon who was looking for the man of her dreams, the wolf of her dreams, and that they would find each other. Uh, I would I would hope that he could safely make his way back to Northern California, find the mate, and begin to establish a pack there. While it's still uncertain why this wolf has traveled so far, I like to think he's setting the country a signal. He's making himself seen and demonstrating that he is not a threat to anyone's livelihood. He's taking enormous risks to expose himself publicly. So we can wake up out of this trance we've been in for nearly 200 years, exterminating his species. So I'm assuming that all of these major roads he's crossing, he's finding some under road crossing, you know, a creek, culvert, something like that. But the fun thing also to think about is, you know, when OR7 came into the state, we're like, oh my God, this is the first wolf to come in California in almost 100 years. Well, OR93, where he is at, now, the last most recent sighting of a wolf anywhere out there that's been reported is, I think, from 1836 or 1826 in Monterey County. I mean, we're talking 200 years ago. In making the series, some people ask me, why is this so important? Yeah, it's sad that wolves are being killed and they play a key role in their ecosystems, but those ecosystems also survived during the decades without them. And there are a lot of problems out there that need 
attention and needs solving. Well, let me tell you why. The fight to protect wolves is far bigger than the wolves and far bigger than us. For too long, we have lived in complete imbalance with the natural world. We have been pillaging and abusing it like we would an enemy of war. We being the aggregate we, of course, and not all people in all communities operate this way. We must end our war with nature. We must end our war with wildlife. We must end our war with wolves. I look at our nearly 200 years of exterminating wolves in this country as a representation of our larger damages to the environment at large. No country in the world has produced more greenhouse gas and pollution in that time than the United States. Yet we've paid for none of that. Quite the opposite. We profit from it. Now, this is not an anti-American rant. This is not an anti-American podcast. There are great and awful aspects of this country. We have it in us to change, though. We have it in us to become a global leader in environmental stewardship, to set an example. We have to stop looking only at the natural world as something that serves us. This exploitative mindset is at the center of climate justice issues that are unfairly hurting both wolves and millions of marginalized people here in the U.S. What we end up deciding to do with wolves, to me, is a symbol of our overall attitude towards the environment. We drape wolves with all of this cultural significance. You know, they're 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 either the demon or they're you know the symbol of wilderness. And I, I don't think any of those things actually serve wolves very well. But in my mind, if I was going to say what wolves symbolize, it's it's really humans' ethical standards towards wildlife. Yeah. I'm a hunter. I'm not anti-hunting in any way, but I have yet to find a legitimate reason to hunt wolves. So let's please get this right. Let's make the setbacks of 2021 an anomaly and not the norm. These wolves are powerful beings and it's, they're not just, I mean, they do, they provide so many ecological benefits, right? And, but they have such a great level of agency and intellectual capacity and heart and you know they they really care about the the whole picture they're they're the animals we believe they have kind of the whole picture figured out and and so they're they're not acting just chaotically out there like a brainless machine you know they they are they have they have much greater intelligence than we do in in many different aspects of their their being and so to harm them to harm them we've been told and and the harm that goes through it doesn't just affect the anishinaabeg but you know the harm is going to occur to the the people who are making these decisions to hurt this animal and, you know, we, like we as Anishinaabeg, we need to, we need to give up that responsibility. It's not our responsibility to solve the problems of the settler colonial society, to solve this murderous desire to obliterate this creature. It is not our responsibility. And the deaths that came in our community should not be coming to our community. You know, and, and we're working very hard on in a certain level to push off that responsibility and push it away to those who are who are responsible. And, you know, it's 
there's there's natural law that plays out and you know the the natural law that is is going to play out on this issue and many other issues is is probably not going to be painless i hope this series can make a positive impact in the fight to protect wolves in this country i hope you come away from it feeling more informed and motivated to help again please sign those petitions at saveourwolves.org share the series keep the dialogue going wolves need each and every one of us A big thanks to everyone for being a part of this and contributing their time. And even bigger thanks to the work they're doing. My efforts all but a tiny fraction of the contributions from everybody you heard from. So I applaud and admire them deeply. Thank you for supporting this podcast and Animalia. Thank you for supporting our wolves, our natural world, and this big, beautiful planet that has been so kind and giving to us for so long. (laughs)